Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 27. We're in the midst of the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus has just been nailed up on the cross. We're going to pick it up here in verse 36. The Roman soldiers had just cast their lots for Jesus' garments. Verse 36 says this, Then they, that's the Roman soldiers, sat down and were guarding him there. Now, why were the Roman soldiers guarding the body? Or guarding Jesus, I should say. Not the body. He's still alive. Well, they wanted to keep the disciples from taking Jesus off the cross. Well, there was no need to worry there. The disciples were few, weak, and they lacked courage. But just to be sure that they didn't come to rescue Jesus or to bury him with honor, since he was a criminal, they were guarding him there to keep that from happening. Or perhaps they were guarding Jesus not from the disciples so much, but from the crowd, the enemies of Jesus, who had been shouting, crucify him. Just the week before, they were shouting hosannas unto him, and maybe the crowd might change their minds again and change their minds from crucify him to let's bury him honorably or let's take him and pretend that he is risen from the dead. Maybe the Roman soldiers, maybe the Romans were thinking that. Maybe the Romans were trying to avoid any kind of miraculous escape because Jesus was famous for working miracles. They might have thought this man might somehow figure out how to get down off the cross and get out of there. Now, Pilate referred to this guarding when. He was talking with the Jews in Matthew 27:65, which is the next day. You, Pilate, have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. So Pilate was worried about Jesus' body being stolen by the Christians and that they would start a movement based upon a lie. Now think about how psychologically improbable that is, that Christianity could have spread like wildfire when everybody knew that it was a lie. That doesn't make any sense psychologically. I saw a video one time, I think it was Ray Comfort asking an atheist college professor, how do you explain that? And she said, I don't know. She didn't care. There's, there's no way, folks, that the events of the Gospels didn't happen. Jesus rose from the dead. It all fits together. Matthew 27, verse 37. Above his head they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Above the head is where it was customary to write the criminal charge on a wooden board so that people could know the crime for which the criminal was being executed. That board was carried before the cross as the criminal carried his cross to his execution. Then when he was stood up on the cross, the soldiers would take the board and nail it above his head. Now, the four Gospels have four different versions of the writing, and so many skeptics like to scream and holler, See there, the Bible has contradiction. No, the Bible does not have contradiction. It is easy to reconcile the differences, because the Bible, liberal Protestants, does not contradict itself. Here's an example of the different signs that were over Jesus' head. I say an example. Here's the four different versions in the four Gospels. This version right here that we just read says this, quote, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Mark, it says, The King of the Jews. In Luke, it says, This is the King of the Jews. And in John, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Well, you can see that the words are very, very close, but they're not exact. Well, here's how you reconcile it. The inscription was written in three different languages. Remember the Romans... Well, there, the Roman soldiers, so the, the description was written in Latin. The language that was common back then, the common language of culture and trade, was Koine Greek, so the inscription was written also in Greek. And then Aramaic, a lot of people spoke Aramaic, the non-Hellenistic Jews. That was the language that Jesus used, as a matter of fact. It was in Aramaic, and each inscription differed slightly, especially when you're translating between different they never come out exactly word for word. So Matthew, Luke, and John quoted from the different languages. Matthew quoted from the Hebrew, the Aramaic, which is a version of Hebrew, because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Luke was quoted 
from the Greek time because Luke was an educated Greek writing to a Greek audience. So he quoted from the Greek. And then John quoted from the Latin. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. Now, they quote, and the quotations are slightly different because when you translate from one language to another, you're going to end up with slightly different translations, as anybody who's ever messed with language will tell you. Anybody who's read the Greek version of the New Testament and looked at all the different English translations, you get as close as you can, but you're not going to get it word for word. Now, G- now Pilate, John tells us that Pilate was the one to put this sign up, that sign up, and the sign said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, why, is Pilate, why did Pilate say that? Pilate is mocking the Jews publicly, as my NIV study Bible says. Of course, he knew that Jesus wasn't their political king, but by putting up there the king of the Jews, it made the Jews look stupid for them to be worried about a crucified man being their king. Look at this. This crucified, beaten man is your king, Jews? Ha, ha, ha. You fools. Well, the Jews didn't like that. John 19, verses 21 through 22 says this. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, right up there, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. He wasn't going to put up with any nonsense with the Jews. I'm sure he was really ticked off with them because he didn't want to crucify Jesus to start Jesus to start with, and the Jews had put all kind of pressure on him and threatened a riot, put him between the rock and the hard place. Matthew 27, verse 38. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Mark 15:28. parallel passage says this. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was counted among outlaws. Mark is referring to Isaiah 53:12. Isaiah says this. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil. That's all the people who believe in him. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, amongst the thieves there, the robber and the thief, he Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So the rebels are the transgressors of of God's law. So Marx tells us that by being crucified in the middle of outlaws, Jesus was fulfilling scripture, Isaiah 53, 12, which I just read. Now, why were two criminals crucified to either side of Jesus? Well, here's some options. Perhaps this was ordered by Pilate to lessen the odium of having crucified an innocent man. So I don't know if that's true. That's John Gill's speculation. He is a great speculator. Or it could have been requested by the Jews, and the soldiers agreed to give greater reproach to Jesus. I think that's the most probable answer there. We want to make Jesus look bad. But instead of making Jesus look bad, what they did is they made Jesus fulfill prophecy. Now, the fact that two criminals were on either side of him is very good symbolism because Jesus took on the sins of the world. So when he took on the sins of the world... Sin was laid on him, and now you got three sinners, and I put the word in quotation marks, air quotes, three sinners on the cross because Jesus had taken on the sins of the world. He became like those two sinners to the, to the left and to the right of him. Now, the NIV calls these criminals robbers. The H. Hillman Christian Study Bible calls them criminals. Well, they were probably murderers as well as robbery because it's not apparent that people were crucified for mere robbery, as Adam Clark says. NIV Study Bible says in Roman law, robbery was not a capital offense. So robber must also imply insurrection and treason. In other words, the Greek word there implies that some robbery was going on in the midst of an insurrection. Now, one of those criminals later repented and asked to be in Jesus' kingdom, Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. 
But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I often think is I often think about the problem of how do you accept Jesus? How do you pray to receive Jesus? I hear a lot of people saying you're not supposed to say receive Jesus into your heart because the Bible never says that. You're supposed to repent and believe. In fact, most of the time when you see people believe, becoming Christians, they repent and they believe. That's theologically solid. But here... This thief on the cross, I think he believed, but I didn't see him repenting too much. I guess you could say because he admitted that he was a sinner, he had repented from his sins. I guess you could say that. My point here is that I think sometimes we can get a little too tight about that. Best thing to do when you witness to somebody, tell them that, hey, you've got to confess that you are a sinner and turn your back on it and believe that Jesus has saved you from your sins. That'll do it. Now, Jesus is crucified next to criminals. Remember that in Roman law, only slaves are the very worst kind of criminals, and non-Romans were crucified. So this was a very ignominious death that Jesus was suffering here. Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads. Now, crucified criminals were put close to the road. At least the tour guide told me that while I was in Israel. So I take his word for it. Although you can't believe everything tour guides say. The idea is that people would see the criminals, they'd look at the sign above their head and say, ooh, this is a bad thing that happens to people who break the law. I'm not going to break the law. It's a crime-fighting deterrent by putting criminals by the side of the road. Now, those who were yelling insults at him fulfilled Psalm 89:51 or 52, I'm sorry, Psalm 89:52. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord, how they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. Now they were shaking their heads at Jesus, these passerbys. What emotions are being conveyed when they do that? Derision and contempt, say Gill and Clark. They were exulting in his misery. Like, I can see it even in our culture today. You look at something, you just shake your head and say, gosh, how could somebody be so stupid? Or, gosh, how could something be so awful as this? Or, how could this man have been so sinful and just shake your head? Like, I, I don't believe this. I can't believe it. Matthew 27, verse 40, says this. And saying, these people, this passerby, shaking their heads, and saying, verse 40, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, this supports the idea that the scribes and Pharisees had been working on the crowd to turn it away from following Jesus. Because remember, that was the, the testimony that they tried to get a fake witness in Caiaphas's trial of Jesus. And the witness would say, Jesus said that he was going to tear down the sanctuary. Actually, Jesus never said that. It's a lie. John 2.19 says this, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus says, If you destroy my body, I will raise it up in three days, which has nothing to do with tearing down the temple. And he never said he would tear down the temple. He said, If you tear down the temple. It was a hypothetical. So they're taunting him with something he never said. Save yourself. Of course, Jesus is the Savior of the people, you know, the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to save the people. So they're saying, well, if you're the Messiah, you can't even save yourself. And you said you're the Son of God. Well, if you're the Son of God, you ought to be able to do a simple thing like coming down off the cross. Well, he actually did something even better than that. He died and then came back from the grave. Of course, these mockers probably never got to see that or believe it unless they repented. Even if he had to come down, they wouldn't have believed. They were full of evil in their hearts. They'd already seen greater things than this. They'd even seen resurrections from the dead. At least they'd heard about them. The widow of Nain, for example. Lazarus. The word had gotten around. Of course, you know, you can always deny 
What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Even if you saw somebody raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe me. Sounds like a lot of people I know. Matthew 27, verse 41 through 43. In the same way, the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him. Now, these chief priests, scribes, and elders, of course, the three representatives of Jewish society who had condemned Jesus in the Sanhedrin and then turned him over to Pilate, the chief priest being the official Levitical priest, the religious authorities. The scribes were the academic authorities who taught the law, and the elders were the political authorities who were in the Sanhedrin. So all of these big shots followed Jesus, followed the Roman soldiers, and followed Jesus all the way out to Golgotha, and they mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. So you see these big shots are mingling with the rabble and hurling insults at Jesus, which shows how utterly uncaring they were of their position, of their pride, of place. It shows that they were totally consumed with rage and hatred. This is what they said to Jesus. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Same thing the people were saying. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. They're saying, God doesn't even want this criminal. You think God wants him now? Now, when the Pharisees said that Jesus had saved others, what did he mean? What did they mean by that? Well, that word is healed, actually. He saved others. He made them whole. So this was an acknowledgment that Jesus had indeed healed people, as John Gill says. Or at least that's an option. Another option is that they were saying it sarcastically. They were saying, well, you healed others, ho, 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 indicating that Jesus hadn't really healed anybody, indicating that, no, we don't believe your healings, Jesus. We believe the devil did it, or we believe that Jesus was faking those healings. We believe that you, Jesus, were, was, were faking those healings. This is what John Gill suggests. But whatever, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that these people hated Jesus, and they were pouring out to the utmost their scorn on him as he was in his degraded state. Note the flat-out contradictions to the Jews' concept of the Messiah that Jesus presented to them. Here was a high priest who wanted to destroy the temple of God. Here was a Savior who could not save himself. Here was the Son of God who was crucified like a common criminal. So he sure didn't look like the Messiah to them. Which shows, folks, you've got to believe in Jesus based on his word and who he says he is, not by what your eyes see a lot of times, because your eyes can fool you. Because the world is full of sin, and sin deceives. Verse 42 in this verse, in this section here, the chief priests, scribes, and elders said that if he comes down from the cross, we will believe in him. Do we really believe that? No, they wouldn't have believed in him. They wouldn't have believed in him at all. They hated him too bad. Now, this mocking reference to Jesus, let God rescue him now in verse 43, if God wants him, Jesus, if he, God, wants him, Jesus, this is a allusion to Psalm 22:8, which says, this is the, the Messianic Psalm, the famous Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22:8. He relies on the Lord, the Messiah, let him, the Messiah, rescue him, let the Lord deliver him, since he takes pleasure in him. So God the Father takes pleasure in the Messiah, and the religious leaders and the political leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders say, if he wants him, let God rescue him, if he wants him. But Psalm 22 said, let God rescue him because God takes pleasure in him. So they turned the psalm on its head, negated it, and said, God doesn't want anything like you, Jesus. You are a washed up criminal. Matthew 27, verse 44. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. Now, I've already mentioned that one of those criminals actually believed in him. 
the thief on the cross, the famous thief on the cross. So here's some options to solve this problem here. Why does Matthew say even the criminals, plural, kept taunting him? I've, I'm going to give you three options. One, this is a Hebrew way of speaking, a Hebraism. Let me give you an example. Jonah 1.5, the KGV, which translates this passage kind of literally, says this, Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Well, how can you go into the sides of the ship? You can go into one side of the ship or the other side of the ship, but you cannot at the same time go into both sides of the ship. So this plural there, sides, means the side singular of the ship. It's, it's an artifact of language is why Matthew says criminals here. That's one option. Here's another option. Oh, before I, that's the first option. Before I go to the second option, Matthew 27, verse 44, this verse right here actually translated, translates it as one of the robbers. This is the Mace New Testament. One of the robbers who was crucified with him treated him with the same reproach. Now that's a minority translation. Most of the translations have it plural, so I'm not sure that that's the way to get the the Hebrewism, the translation problem of the Hebrewism might be the way to explain it. I'm not so sure. I think the easiest way to explain it is that the penitent thief reviled Jesus at first, and then as he watched Jesus on the cross, watched his demeanor, started considering things and said, you know, maybe this guy is the Son of God. I want to be in your kingdom, Jesus. And he was converted. Holy Spirit had converted him there right at the very end. He was on the edge of hell. So he was reviling at first, and then he changed his mind and started reviling the other thief instead and said, what are you doing? He didn't do anything wrong. That's the second option to reconcile it. The third option to reconcile it is that Matthew takes one thief as representing the whole, in the same way even the criminals, meaning the, the, the group of criminals there, represented by the one criminal who was taunting him. Again, we say things like that. For example, the Democrats on the committee said that all white people are racist, and actually only two of them did but they stood for the rest. It's ironic they're taunting Jesus. As John Gill pointed out, these guys are on the verge of hell, and they're taunting the one who could save them from hell, and they still didn't care. And, of course, this added to Jesus' sufferings, to be taunted like that as he's hanging up there. I tend, I think most people tend to focus on Jesus' physical torments and sufferings on the cross, but we also have to realize he was being mocked and ridiculed, shamed. I think the Chinese would appreciate this more than Westerners because shame is so horrible to them. Jesus was, he's standing up there naked, whipped, being yelled at and mocked for the truth. Hard to take. It's hard for me to even read it. Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. Now, what are some options as to what caused that darkness? Let's take the first obvious guess. An eclipse of the sun? No, it's not the eclipse of the sun. Eclipses only last for a few minutes. They don't last for three hours. Besides, you can look at the astronomy back then. The moon was full at Passover. It's impossible for a full eclipse of the sun to happen at a full moon. So it's not an eclipse of the sun. Nobody says that. Dark rain clouds might have come up. That's perfectly reasonable to me. And by the way, let me, before I go any further, let's look at this word land. Darkness came over the whole land. That's the Greek word gay. That word can be translated earth or land 50-50. all depends on the context. Some people try to translate it as earth and try to say darkness went all over the earth. I don't believe that. I believe it was talking about the land of Israel because who crucified Jesus? Israel. The, the Jewish leaders of Israel crucified Jesus and the darkness came over the land. It symbolized you guys are in a dark place. So if it just refers to Israel, then it could be the dark rain clouds came up. Origin, the church father Origin suggests that. That makes sense to me. Volcanic dust, Wikipedia has a Wikipedia article on this suggested volcanic dust came up or a dust storm came up because they tend to occur from March to May. 
that could be it. Could be a sunstorm. Something happened with the sun on the sun and darkened the sun. Lots of good theories. I think the simplest thing to say is just a bunch of rain clouds came up. I mean, I, where I live, it's gotten dark real quick, real fast. It's kind of spooky, kind of. But at any rate, it was dark. Early Christian apologists tended to say it was a miracle, but most modern Christians use a more naturalistic explanation. But even with a naturalistic explanation like his rain clouds, the timing of it is quite miraculous. Why would the timing come right at the time that Jesus is suffering on the cross? This darkness convinced the Roman centurion that Jesus was the Son of God. That centurion, who, who he later on will see, he said, that surely this was the Son of God. He saw the darkness. He saw Jesus' demeanor on the cross. He heard Jesus shouting out when most men crucified like that would be dying, exhausted, and unconscious. He, Father, into thy hands I commit, commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He watched all this, and he saw the darkness come up, and he's... And it helped convince him that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, the darkness lasted till 3 o'clock. This is appropriate because that's when Jesus died. And that's just about the time of the evening sacrifice, the morning and evening sacrifice every day in the temple. That was 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So Jesus died at 3. Matthew 27, verse 46. About 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, thani. That's Aramaic, and I, and I sure as heck don't know how to pronounce Aramaic. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you might wonder, why didn't Matthew just say in, 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 in Greek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why put the Aramaic in there? It's because of the Eli, Eli, because those words were heard and misunderstood by the passersby who thought he was calling for Elijah, Eli, Eli, Elijah, Elijah. There's the misunderstanding. That probably explains why Matthew spelled out that, Aramaic. Actually, people debate whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew. Aramaic is a dialect or a kind of Hebrew language. And some people say, and the NIV Study Bible actually says that the phrase is a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. I don't know what it is. Clark says which language it is has been debated. Some say Hebrew, some Aramaic, some say a mixture. Doesn't matter. The point is, the first two words, Eli, Eli, sounded like Elijah. Now, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was again quoting that famous Messianic psalm, Psalm 22, which says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? So Jesus directly quoted that psalm. And you can imagine the agony. He was forsaken because, because Jesus was cut off from the intimate presence of his father because of the sin that he was bearing. It wasn't because God had forsaken him and left him on the cross. Jesus knew he was going to die and rise again and that wasn't his problem the problem is why have i lost your presence because of all the sin that's on me now he cried out loud with a loud voice he shouted twice on the cross this is the first time the second time is when he said into thy hands i commit my, my into your hands i commit my spirit so he shouted out my god my god why have you forsaken me he had been silent during those three hours of darkness and then all of a sudden he broke out in anguish he felt the divine wrath he also probably felt the opposition of the powers of darkness who are mocking him and saying, we've got you, we've, ki we've killed the Messiah, we've killed the Son of God. Now let's look at this idea of God forsaking Jesus. Now this presents some interesting theological problems. Here's some options as to what, as to what Jesus meant. The hypostatical union was dissolved. The hypostatical union means the union of Jesus' divinity with his humanity. And so... Some people say, see there, God at this point says, Jesus is divine, the divine Son of God is going to leave the human Son of God, split them apart, the divine 
Son of God is in heaven now, and this, the human Son of God is going to be left on the cross. That's, of course, heresy. That's nonsense. You don't divide the hypostatical union. The union of Jesus' divinity and humanity is never going to be dissolved. It's not dissolved now. Jesus is in heaven, fully divine, fully human. He is at a location somewhere in the other world, the final state, the state that's going to be the final state. Another option is what this meant when Jesus said he was forsaken by God. Could it mean that God didn't love Jesus anymore? Well, of course not. Of course, God always, the Father always loved the Son. Another option, Jesus was separated from the knowledge and presence of God because Jesus was bearing the sin of the world, and that's the correct option. That's what the option I just said, actually. Here's another option. It could be translated differently, says Adam Clark. My God, my God, to what sort of persons has thou left me? I don't, I don't know about the accuracy of Clark's translation. I think it's just as, it's the best thing to say is that Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, and as a result, he felt abandoned by God. Now, here's an application for Christians. If Jesus, our high priest, suffered the things we do, it will be normal for us at some point to feel abandoned by God. It's not surprising. How many Christians testify, where are you, God? Everybody's gone through that. Jesus went through it. Ultimately, he nobody has ever felt as abandoned by God as Jesus was. So the next time you feel abandoned by God, just think about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he felt like. And also realize that he was not abandoned by God. God was with him the whole time, resurrected from the dead. He will resurrect you from your circumstances, which make you feel like you're dead. Now, here's an interesting point. Some people have deprecated Jesus's character for saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They say that these words are unworthy of a man who suffers conscious of his innocence. In other words, he never should have said, why have you left me? These words say the critics argue Jesus' imbecility, his impatience, and his despair. Well, that is absolute nonsense. It's blasphemy. In other words, these, these critics are saying that Jesus is showing a lack of faith in God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't showing a lack of faith in God. He was describing an objective situation, an objective situation that affected his psychology and his emotions greatly. Same thing happens to us, too. You feel abandoned by God, but God never abandons. He will never leave us and never forsake us, as that great verse in Hebrews says. Matthew 27, verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, that's the Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, I don't know, Lima, Sabachthani, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. When some of those, as we go down to verse 47 in Matthew 27, when some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah because they heard that Eli, Eli. Now, some of the Jews there were Hellenistic Jews, of course, who didn't even know Hebrew, so they heard Eli, Eli. They, didn't, they assumed it was Elijah. It could be Jews who understood Hebrew and Aramaic, but they just misheard him. Anyway, and people had a predisposition to think Elijah anyway because it was commonly thought Elijah would come in times of distress to rescue the righteous, as my NIV study Bible says on Mark 15:35, chapter Verse 48 of chapter 27, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. One of the bystanders ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink. Why would they do that? Well, in my humble opinion, it was somebody that just had sympathy on him. Or maybe they wanted to revive him so they could see if Elijah would come rescue him. Some people have said it was to hasten his death. I don't know how drinking sour wine is going to hasten your death when you're thirsty. I don't understand that. Some people say it was to mock him. I don't know why that would mock him. Why would that mock him? Jesus says, I'm thirsty. They give him sour wine. I don't, it seems to me that that's a, an answer to a, a reasonable request. 
Sour wine was a uh, wine that was used by soldiers and laborers as cheap wine, in other words. It fulfilled a prophecy in Psalm, Psalm 69, 21. Instead, they gave me gall for my food and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink, vinegar, sour wine. It's interesting, in John 19, 28, after Jesus had borne everything on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then it says in John 19:28. after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. That's really, I mean, it's just such a human touch. You know, he's, he's born the sins of the world, and the next thing he says is, I'm thirsty. He was fully human while he was fully God. Matthew 27, verse 30, 49. But the rest said, uh, these, some, some others of the bystanders said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. As I earlier said, Elijah was commonly believed to, that it was commonly believed that Elijah would come in times of critical need to rescue the righteous, as my NIV study Bible says, of Jewish culture. The Jews thought he was the forerunner of the Messiah. We know that. Uh, J- John, you know, of course, was the prepared the way, and Jesus said that John was Elijah. Where is that? I think it's in Zechariah where it says that Elijah is going to come before that great and terrible day of the Lord, that Elijah would come. I forgot the exact verse. But anyway, it was well known that Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah, and they're saying, well, and if Elijah comes to rescue him, maybe he will be the Messiah. The Jews, according to John Gill, had a notion that Elijah commonly came and talked to people. So Elijah was big in Jewish culture. What's that thing about the, the empty seat at the Seder, Passover meals, where Elijah's supposed to come? After this verse, when we see if, let's see if Elijah comes to save him, John 19:34, John says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. So it was obvious Elijah was not going to come and rescue him, because when the blood and water comes out, that means you are dead. Matthew 27:50. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. I think this piercing was after he, gave, he shouted with a loud voice. The piercing in John, recorded in John, piercing of the spear was after Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. That's the second time Jesus shouted. The first time was Eli, Eli, Labakthani, Lima, Sabatini, whatever it is. Eli, Eli, the Aramaic, my God, my God, why has forsaken, forsaken me? Now, right before he dies, he shouts again. So let's see some de- get some details from the parallel passages. Luke 23:46. And Jesus called out with a loud voice. There's the shout. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. And John 19:30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So he said, it is finished, means it is accomplished. I've borne all the sins of the world. And then he also said, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Pretty majestic way of dying, and again, the Roman soldier got convinced when he saw that, plus the darkness. When he says it is finished, what's finished? Well, it could be his life's race, the course of his life is finished, and I've done everything I was supposed to do as I, as I endeavored to carry out the Father's will. But, of course, the ultimate, the cherry on the cake, if you will, of his work was atoning for our sins. Now, that loud voice... Here's some of the emotions that it could, that loud voice could have shown. The vehemency of his affection. This is from John Gill. The vehemency of his affection, his strong confidence in God, and his fearlessness of death. He could have said it so loudly, so said it loudly, so the crowd could hear, because what he was saying was of great importance. He had just expiated the sins of the world. He wanted everybody to know it. Now, when we talk about shouting here, we got to remember how weak Jesus would have been at this point. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. After such agonies in the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and so much fatigue in being heard from place to place, five different trials in the middle of the Friday night, Friday morning in the middle of the night, 
and such loss of blood by being buffeted, scourged, crowned with thorns, and nailed to the accursed tree, he'd lo- and carrying the cross to, the, to Golgotha, he had lost blood, he was worn out, he hadn't slept, he was whipped within an inch of his life, and he had been stretched out on a cross where you were in agonizing pain just trying to keep your lungs from collapsing and suffocating you, so you're pulling against those nails, which of course hurts, as you try to stay alive. And then he cried out with a loud voice. John Gill says this is so remarkable that this was a mark of his divinity. And as I mentioned earlier, that Roman soldier had never seen anything quite like that. And he believed, or at least he said it was the Son of God. Where does he say that? Mark 15, verse 39, when the centurion who was standing opposite him, he was the, the centurion was the Roman official in charge of the four Roman soldiers who cast lots for Jesus' clothes. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. Now, this is unusual for Jesus to be shouting out like this. He didn't die the ordinary death of the crucified. Crucified men were usually exhausted and unconscious before dying, as my NIV study Bible says. Now, you notice it says he gave up his spirit. Matthew says this in verse 50. He gave up his spirit. This shows that he voluntarily died. His life was not taken from him. He was a free will sacrifice for sin. He didn't. His bones were not broken to kill him, as we know from the other parallel passages. Jesus' bones were not broken. He did not stay on the cross till he died through pain and agony. He says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Most people on the cross just die naturally from the, from the torture. And if they don't, their legs are broken by the Roman soldiers and they're killed. But he said, In, into thy hands, God, Father, I give my spirit. So he died voluntarily as a free will sacrifice for our sin. You cannot read this account of the crucifixion. If you're a Christian, you cannot read this and have your heart just filled up with gratitude for what Jesus did for you. And I think it's a good thing to do to read it periodically and 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 to take it slowly and go through and think about what it was like up there, what he went through so that you don't have to suffer the pains of hell. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up the resurrection in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.